Hi, everybody. My name is Tom, and I'm an alcoholic. My name is Tom. I'm an alcoholic and a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. If you've got to be an alcoholic, that's the best kind of alcoholic to be. Because sometimes if you're an alcoholic, it gets kind of cold outside and the winds blow hard. And then there are other times if you're an alcoholic and you got any gratitude that you just got to tell somebody that you ain't had a drink all day. And you can't just walk up to anybody on the street and say, guess what, I haven't had a drink all day. <laughs> they might put you away. And, and, and uh, I've had my share of being put away. I want to thank you for inviting me. I've already gone through that in my other capacity. I want to particularly thank Marvin for his skillful driving through the five o'clock traffic from Hobby. Sometimes I like to say to Tom is who I am and an alcoholic is what I am. When I got up this morning, who told her what we wasn't going to drink, and that's the way it's been all day long. But it wasn't always that way. It used to be to who tell her what we wasn't going to drink and what if who say who said we ain't. And the who would say, I said we ain't, and the what would say, just you wait and see. <laughs> and then the what would go out and get drunk, and the who would have the hangover. <laughs> and that reminds me of a story. It don't really remind me of the story. I've known about it all the way along. <laughs> I'm looking at my watch, but that don't mean a thing. The story is about those three drunk rabbits, and their names were Foot and Foot Foot and Foot Foot Foot. <laughs> and they were always carrying on and drinking and stealing each other's booze and stuff like that. And Foot 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 would come to Foot Foot and he'd say, Foot Foot, steal my booze. And Foot would say, Look, Foot Foot, you and Foot 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 are going to have to straighten this out between yourselves and don't get me involved in it because I don't want to get tied up in that mess. And this kind of stuff went on all the time and then one day Foot died. And they gave him a good funeral but you know how it is, you got to get juiced up to go to a funeral. And after it's all over with, they're sitting alongside a fence with the ears, you know how a drunk rabbit looks. And Foot 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 turned to Foot Foot and he said, Well, I guess we might as well go to Alcoholics Anonymous now that we got one foot in the grave. <laughs> There's a lot of grant money going around to study this problem we got here, uh, and I, I, I like grants. Because grants, you don't have to put up no matching funds for them. See, that, that, that's the thing about the serenity prayer. Serenity prayer is a typical alcoholic prayer. It's a typical mooch's prayer. It's saying, God granted to me. I ain't got nothing. You know, I'm broke. Got a thing to put up on my side of the deal. You granted to me. No strings attached. Well, that's what they're doing with all this grant money, trying to figure out 
how people get to be alcoholics. And I'd like to get a hold of some of that money. I don't really need it, but I could use it. But the main reason I'd like to get a hold of it is I already know how you become an alcoholic. You, I got to be an alcoholic by drinking. And I don't know any other way to become an alcoholic than by drinking. I stand up here sometimes when I don't have anything else to do, and I relate adolescent experiences, being bashful around girls and all this kind of stuff. And then after the meeting's over with, people say, man, I sure could identify with you about that being bashful around girls and stuff like that. Hell, I guess you could. I'm describing typical teenage normal behavior. And it ain't got nothing to do with being an alcoholic. But somewhere along the line, I took a drink, and that did it for me. That's all you got to do is, in order to be an alcoholic is to take a drink. Well, you've got to do a little bit more than that. But, I mean, everybody's got to start someplace. <laughs> and I can't truthfully say that I liked alcohol right from the beginning. I hear people say that they just loved it. I know a guy who said he used to roll the windows up in his car and roll it around in his mouth and smell it and cry. I, I just, I, I never was like that. I had a lot of trouble with my stomach. I mean, I never could get my stomach and my brain working at the same time. Brain would be getting all these impulses from the nerves saying we need a drink and brain would be just on the verge of giving out orders to take the drink and the stomach would say, don't you dare put any of that stuff down here. I ain't going to have anything to do with it. And they'd get in an argument with each other back and forth, and sooner or later the brain would win, and down it would go, but you couldn't buffalo the stomach, <laughs> because the stomach would send it right straight back up again. And you sit there with it going up and down, 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 and finally, if you're lucky, you can get it down, get one to stay down. In the later stages of your drinking, if it's Sunday and all the liquor stores are closed, it ain't no question of what's going to happen. You just put your hands over your mouth, and by God, it's going to get down and stay down sooner or later, and that's all they is do it. They say that old people can't digest milk very well. And one night not long ago, I loaded up on some bran and milk, and I must have gone heavy on the milk. And about 2 o'clock in the morning, I woke up, God Almighty jumped on this sitting up on the side of my bed. I had belched up some of that undigested milk and it had got down my windpipe. And it was tears coming out of my eyes and stuff coming out of my nose. And I was going, <laughs> and I thought to myself, just like old times. But I also thank, thought to myself, thank God it's just milk, you know, because uh, I'd have sure hated to have to get up and start that 
crap all over again. So I started drinking, and the first thing you know, I got drunk, and, and, and then uh, I was on my way to becoming an alcoholic and didn't know it. And I think that's something that I ought to stand up here and say that in order to be an alcoholic, you got to drink. I just think it's important for everybody to know that in order to be an alcoholic, you got to drink. Now, it seems that some people think that if you're a neurotic, that'll get it. It might help, but it won't do it by itself. I mean, you have to drink in order to be an alcoholic. And some people don't understand that. And nowadays, you're not supposed to speak, you know, looking down your nose at underprivileged groups. But in a lot of places in around the country, it's the end thing to belong to Alcoholics Anonymous today. It really is. It's, it's a kind of a status thing. And I have to look down my nose because I have nothing but total pity for those people who would like to be alcoholics and don't have what it takes. I mean, uh, uh, <laughs> that's right. There's a lot of people like to get in here. They like all the good things we got, the loving and the kissing and the hugging and all that kind of stuff, but they miss out on the drinking. I know people that are drinking, puke, and quit, and, and you, you, you can't get no place that way. Uh, <laughs> You see, just everybody can't be an alcoholic. In order to be an alcoholic, you've got to have certain outstanding characteristics. You have to have courage and fortitude and determination and the capacity to envision a goal and let nothing keep you from achieving that goal. And some people just can't pull it off, and that's all there is to it. And, and, and I pity them. I, I feel sorry for them. I really do. So I think it's important for me to say in order to be an alcoholic, you got to drink. Then there's another thing that there's not complete understanding about, and that is that in order to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, you got to quit. a lot of people that like all the good things we got here and there. They like the hugging and the kissing and the loving and all this kind of stuff. But they miss out on the part about not drinking. And I don't think it's entirely their fault. I don't think we really tell them the whole truth when they first get it. There's a requirement for membership in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I didn't make it up. It was here when I got here. The requirement for membership in AA is a desire to stop drinking. And I think the trouble is that a lot of people don't know what a desire is. A lot of people think that a desire is something that if you've got, it's all right, and if you don't have it, it's okay, too. It don't make any difference one way or another, but that's not the way it is. My wife taught me what a desire is. And I don't think that any married man in any race should ever, and sure not Beverly, for Christ's sake, <laughs> I don't think any married man should ever have any problem understanding what the requirement for membership in Alcoholic Anonymous is. 
Because in my day, at any rate, that's what those gals did when we were courting them. They led us on and led us on and led us on, put a whole lot of ideas in their head, got us all ready for action. They knew by instinct that attraction was better than promotion. <laughs> and then one day they drew a line and said, uh-uh. And what they really said, if you ever stopped to think about it, was if you decided that you want what I got <laughs> and are willing to go to any length to get it, <laughs> then you're ready to take certain steps. Of course, it's some of these we bought. <laughs> we thought we could find an easier, softer way. <laughs> you see, that's the desire. Desire is a screaming many itch. <laughs> to get the thing that you design, you'd do anything in God's green earth to get it. And I'll tell you another thing about a desire. If you're going to have a desire, you've got to have some kind of general idea of what it is you're going to desire in the first place. I mean, you can't just go out and sit in a field and desire. <laughs> I come from a little dumb town. I mean, I don't know. We've got 7,500 people there or something like that. And I wanted to leave this town and go off and be a success and a hero. And, 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 and I had the opportunity. I, I come from Irish immigrant stock, and they're the kind of people that wanted to see each generation better themselves. And, and, and so, you know, the whole clan chipped in to send me off to college. And I don't know if Bill's in here or not, but I went off to the University of Texas, and I never will forget the first two or three nights I was there, some of us went out for a steak dinner, about four couples of us, and we were sitting around a round table, and the waitress came up and asked everybody what kind of dressing they wanted on the salad, and when she got to me, I said, craft. Well, you see, you're just like everybody else. I can tell I'm going to have trouble with you right straight on through. They laughed at me, too. And right then and there, I developed a lifestyle that lasted until long after I'd gotten into Alcoholics Anonymous. And it was this, that whenever I said anything, I had to observe you closely to see how you understood it so I could decide how I meant it. And if you laughed, I was a comedian, and if you looked puzzled, I was a philosopher. <laughs> but I discovered something while I was off at college, and it was this. I discovered, you know, maybe I had changed a little. Maybe my body had changed. I don't know what the heck it was, but this time I didn't do so much throwing up and stuff like that and have all these arguments between the brain and the stomach. This time I could take a drink or two or three and something wonderful happened in my life. And the thing that was wonderful that happened was that people changed. Most of the time if I looked at a group of people like you 
Only one of two thoughts would enter my mind, or maybe both. Do you threaten me, or can I use you? But with a drink or two or three in me, by God, I was charming, and you were beautiful, and I could just tell by the look in your eyes that you were saying to me, Tom, come on out here and be one of us. Belong to us. We want you. We need you. And with a drink or two or three in me, I could do that. I could go out and genuinely participate in the things that you could do, you were doing. And this is something that I couldn't do sober. Sober, I was just a nerd. But with a drink or two or three in me, I was part of the totality of things, and it was a good feeling. And so I liked to drink when I was with people. But it wasn't just when I was people that I liked to drink. Sometimes I liked to drink when I was by myself. My last name is O'Sullivan. You know that by now. And sometimes I like to take a drink or two and look at myself in the mirror. And I call myself Sully Baby. <laughs> and I'd say things like, Sully Baby, you're all right. Or, Sully Baby, you're going to make it. Stuff like that. And some of this mirror talking was in the news, too, by the way. <laughs> I see we must have a couple of nude mirror talkers in the room. And then when I was going to dental school in New Orleans, I lived in an apartment building and outside in the daytime was what was a kind of a crummy-looking scene. A couple of streetcar tracks and some scraggly old trees. But at night, with a drink or two or three, God, it was beautiful. And I used to like to take a drink or two or three and sit there by that window and look out at the sheer beauty of the night. And sometimes I'd take a drink or two or three and I'd get sweet music on the radio and I'd cry. And I love to cry. I don't mean ball, but I mean just fill up right to here with real honest to God feeling and have real wet tears flow over my eyelids and course down my cheek. And I always did think that there was something beautiful about having a drink or two or three and feeling good and being sad. And so it's no mystery to me at all how I became an alcoholic because I had stumbled on to a way of life that appealed to me. It had all the things that I longed for. It gave me the ability to be part of the human race, to make enduring and, 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 and lovable friendship. It gave me the ability to be alone, just me by myself, and to see beauty and life all around me. And so I pursued it as the way of life. And I've said many times that for me, it was just as though I'd been walking down the street and turned the corner and got lost and couldn't find my way back. Because all of a sudden, this life that I had built up, this success, I remember now I had left this little town to be a success and a hero, and I had achieved it. 
In my early 30s, I had everything that a young man could want. I'd graduated from dental school. I'd taken an internship, some postgraduate training. I was in the regular army, had some field experience, a lovely family overseas on a sensitive diplomatic mission, numbered amongst my patients, the president of a nation, Vehicle assigned to me with driver, general staff. Everything that they say means so much to alcoholics. Money, power, prestige. All right there in the grasp of my hand. And the whole thing began to fall apart, and I never could understand why it was falling apart. I never could put any connection between what was happening to my life and the fact that I was drinking the way I was. And people started talking ugly about me. They said I smell bad. Well, I admit I had quit drinking sometime, I mean, quit bathing sometime in my drinking career. I didn't taper off, I just flat damn quit. But there was a reason for that. I had a traumatic experience. Uh, I'm married to a woman, and I don't care what's wrong with you. Her first choice is a good hot bath. Now, I've been in Alcoholics Anonymous for 26 years and 7 months and 13, 14 days. And I think when you've been in as long as I've been in, you have to set up a table or devise a, a system of relative values that you're going to live by. And I've done that. And I want to tell you that today I will take a bath. <laughs> but it's way the hell down on my scale of values. I can think of 14 things I'd rather do than take a good hot bath. But this woman was always talking about taking a good hot bath, and one night she got me in the tub, and out of a clear blue sky I had a spiritual experience, and I realized that it was Saturday night, and I didn't have enough liquor to last me through the weekend. This is in San Antonio, Texas, and we lived a block and a half up a hill from the Texas liquor store, and they closed at 10 o'clock. But I got it at 9.30, and I got out of there, and she had stole my britches. <laughs> now, I haven't seen any of you this weekend, but a lot of times when I go places, I see some of these tough leather jacket macho types. And I got a message for you if you happen to be sitting out there incognito. <laughs> and it's this, I don't care how tough you think you are, you ain't nothing without your britches. about praying them days because I didn't have nobody to pray to, but I found somebody to pray to real quick. I got out of that tub ringing very wet, and I got down on my knees, and I prayed to that woman to give me back my britches. 
and seek them back at the last possible moment, and I put them on, nothing else, just the pants. And I streaked down there to that Texas liquor store and zoomed in there, trying to look cool. <laughs> And bought my weekend supply, but I'm telling you what, my mother didn't raise no damn fool. I, I stopped bathing right then and there. <laughs> and I wasn't too well received when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, nowadays, I don't think it would be any problem at all, because nowadays all you got to go is mm <laughs> And you can get by, but when I came in, we didn't have all that damn stuff. We had these little arid pads and stuff like that that didn't do any good at all. And, and uh, you never had any trouble getting a seat at a meeting that I was at when I came down to Arizona. <laughs> there was always one in front and back and on either side. Well, for one thing, when I came to AA, something was crawling on me. And I spent a lot of time looking for it. And towards the end of my drinking career, I had developed some muscle spasms. I'd be walking down the street or talking to you, and all of a sudden, I'd go that arm. I'd be walking down the street, and all of a sudden, mm, I'd go that leg. <laughs> now, I'm glad you saw that, because I can't pull that off much longer. <laughs> now, this didn't bother me at all. As a matter of fact, when it went away, I missed it. But I'd be sitting in them meetings looking for whatever it was that was crawling on me, and I'd have one of them spasms, and everybody would think I'd found it. <laughs> now, I'm going to tell you something. This, I just, just popped in my head, but I'm going to tell you this the truth. I hear all these people say, when I came to AA, they had their arms outstretched and said, we've been waiting for you. We love you. Not in my group. <laughs> my group actually held meetings and called in people from surrounding groups to see if there was a legitimate way to keep me from coming to Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> and I'm glad they did that because I learned something. It's one of the most wonderful things that I ever learned in my whole life. And it's this, that we in Alcoholics Anonymous have a cross-section of the communities that we live in. And we've got a lot of nice, wonderful people in Alcoholics Anonymous, and we've got some bastards in here. <laughs> and I made up my mind right from day one that no bastards can run me out of Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> the first place I've ever been in my whole life that you can't run me out. I don't care whether you like me or don't like me or what the hell your feelings are. The only person that can run me out of Alcoholics Anonymous is me. And I ain't got no intentions of going. 
And then they said my hands were shaking. Well, I knew my hands were shaking. And I had worked out a system whereby I was in real good shape up to 10 o'clock. And my wife also is a good cook, and she's one of these people that believes that if you're going to be well, you've got to eat well. And she wanted me to leave for work with a hearty breakfast under my belt. Well, in those days, I couldn't just sit down and eat. I had to get ready to eat. And I tell you, sometimes, you know, I, I get perplexed when people in Alcoholics Anonymous talk about spirituality. Sometimes I get the idea of what people in AA mean about spirituality is that some dense fog comes in through an open window and hovers over us until the dew point gets right and then it precipitates out and gets us all wringing wet with spirituality. And I don't think that's what it is at all. I mean, when I use the word spiritual as regards the problem of alcoholic anonymous, I don't mean but one thing. I mean a source of power. Now, that's all I mean. Spiritual to me means a source of power. And I don't know of any greater spiritual reality that has ever taken place in my life than the one that's going to take place tonight at that banquet. I'm going to sit down with no preparation and eat. <laughs> and if that ain't a spiritual benefit, boy, I'll you know what. But in those days, I had to get ready to eat. So I, and I never liked to get up early in the morning. But I'd have to get up early enough to get drunk up enough to eat breakfast, and then breakfast would make me sober. And then I'd have to get drunk up enough to go to work, but not so drunk that I couldn't go to work. And that's work. <laughs> I ain't talking about no 40-hour week now. I'm talking about 365 days out of the year, every night when I went to bed. I knew exactly how I was going to feel in the morning when I got up. Sick of the dog. That's what I'm talking about, that courage and fortitude and determination that it takes to be an alcoholic. Don't tell me that it don't take an unusual person to be an alcoholic. But I had it so I was in real good shape up at 10 o'clock, and just before I'd leave to go to work, I used to put a drop of Shalimar perfume on my tongue. And later on, they had some proceedings against me in the Army, and they asked a major that had an office next to me how I smelled when I came to work in the morning. And he said he smelled like a drunken French whore. I mean, <laughs> That's kind of things they were saying, and uh, I can remember a lot of times I'd have people cut on the inside from here to here, and it had come time to sew them back up, and the clock would strike ten. <laughs> and I'd have to stuff a lot of cotton in their mouth and go over in the corner and take a drink, and they were narrow-minded. <laughs> See, I told you I was going to have trouble with you. You just like they were. And you just like the colonel was. I never could explain that to the colonel. 
I'm going to try one more time with you. You see, if I was a jack-leg dentist, I'd have let him go with the damn gums flapping in the breeze. But I've never been that kind of fellow. I have always been a professional man with the highest ethical and moral standards. And I wouldn't dream of letting anybody leave my office without being properly sold up. And the only way I could do it was to take a drink. And I was the only dentist within 1,500 miles. And then one day a guy told me, he said, well, if you're having trouble with your hand shaking, why don't you take a goofball or two? That's what you younger people call downers. What we medical people call sodium secondol, anemitol, grain and a half in a capsule, yellow, anemitol, red, secondol. One day I took two or three of them and I went to sleep and a lady left. <laughs> No big deal as far as I was concerned, I really, I mean, I'm just sitting there and all of a sudden, oh, I can go like that. But boy, you ought to have seen her husband. He took, he, he took a dim view of that situation, I said, And when I came back to the United States, I knew I was in some kind of trouble, and I went to an army doctor that was well thought of. And I told him I thought I might be an alcoholic, and I have no idea where I got that word from. I was a captain in the dental corps at the time, and he said to me, I'm glad you came to me. He said, just last week I cured a major general. <laughs> so they put me in a hospital and stuck a lot of needles in me and out me and up me, and the cure didn't take. And for a long time, I thought it was because I was just a captain. <laughs> and I'm not trying to just be funny. I can remember walking down the street and saying to myself, man, if I was just somebody else, all this wouldn't be happening to me. And I got all the same advice that you got. They said to me, why don't you drink like Bill? Bill is a bald-headed brother-in-law of mine. Like I said, I've been sober in AA nearly 27 years, and I feel about Bill tonight exactly as I did 30 years ago. <laughs> I don't never want to do nothing like Bill. And besides, how do you drink like Bill? And then they told me, get right with God. Well, look, I got the same question tonight that I had back then. How do you do it? How do you do it? Now, you don't have to pay much attention to what I'm saying up here, because if you disagree with me, you've got a constitutional right to be wrong. <laughs> but I'm going to stand here and tell you that I don't believe that Alcoholics Anonymous have got the answer to your problem. And the reason I say that, there is no chapter in the book titled, There is an Answer. 
The title of the chapter is There's a Solution. And that's what we've got. We've got a time-tested, experience-proved solution, and you've got to put you in the solution and come up with your own answer. And I sometimes think that that's the trouble with the whole stupid world that we live in. Not just in the area of alcoholism, but surely including that. That every Tom, Dick, and Harry that you run into has got the answer to your problem and they don't even know what your dumb problem is. And as far as I'm concerned, it may perhaps be the glory of the Fellowship of Alcoholics and Anonymous that we really don't pretend to have the answer. But what we do have is a time-tested, experience-proved solution. And you've got to put you in the solution and come up with your own answer. And then he tried to scare me into stop drinking. I don't believe you can scare an alcoholic into not drinking. That reminds me of a story I got absolutely no business in the world telling, but I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> it's a story about a little boy that his mama caught him playing with himself. And she gave him a doomsday lecture. She said, that'll make you go blind. And he said, well, could I keep on doing it just till I have to wear glasses? <laughs> and that's almost a textbook definition of being an alcoholic. If it ever really gets bad, I'll quit. You can take a hundred people and put them in the hospital and shoot them with heroin on a continuing regular basis, and all hundred of them will become addicted to the heroin, and everybody knows that, nobody argues about it, nobody gets excited about it. You take a hundred people and put them in a controlled setting again and feed them with alcohol long enough, only six of them will become alcoholics. And all six of them will be convinced right down to the marrow of their bone that they wanted to remain in 94. <laughs> well, I lost all the things that I had gained in my success story, and I mean lost them all, and when finally I was reduced to the level or a street bum on the streets of the city of San Antonio, and because there's nothing else left to do, I went back to this town that I had left to be a success and a hero. And I hitchhiked back into Lake Providence one Labor Day weekend on a Tasty Bird poultry truck. And even that guy hurt my feelings because I was trying to tell him how he could make some money if he'd follow some suggestions I had to offer. <laughs> and he wouldn't pay any attention to me. And I, I went I went back there and became the town drunk. And, and we don't have town drunks anymore because the culture has shifted. We don't have any downtown for them to be town drunks then. So we got neighborhood drunks, and we got shopping mall drunks, and we got parking lot drunks, and we got condominium drunks, and we got supermarket drunks. 
There's just a difference in the cultural shift. And I tell you what, we are peculiar people. I never have known an anonymous alcoholic in my whole life. We go out in the supermarket in the parking lot and God knows where else and we get drunk and fall down and make asses out of ourselves and it don't bother us one bit. And then one day we decide to come to Alcoholics Anonymous and straighten up and live decent lives and the very first thing we do is we say, shh, don't tell nobody. Go to AA9 and straighten up and be a responsible citizen, but I don't want nobody to know that. <laughs> and so that's another meaning of anonymity. We ain't going to tell on you. And I finally really lost all the things that I had, and I went down to a place that. Probably not many of you have gone to. I was telling a young man this afternoon that I think a psychosis is beneficial to alcoholics if they can recover from it and get in this program and and uh, and then begin to live by the principles that are contained in in, in the program of recovery. Because if you've had a psychosis, you know what the other side of life is like. I was declared dead one time. Now, obviously, that was a mistaken diagnosis, but it doesn't make any difference. I mean, I was declared dead. They thought I'd tried to commit suicide. Actually, it was just a minor flipping technique. I was committed to a mental institution for psychiatric observation as a potential super suicide. And we get all uptight about treatment centers nowadays, but we've always had treatment centers in alcoholics and all. It's just the nature of them changes, that's all. In my days, we had a few beds in the nut house. And all my experience was in nut houses. And they used to spend a lot of time, every time I'd go there, debating on whether I was a drunk who was nuts or a nut who drank. <laughs> but I never got in the alcoholic section. They always put me in a nut ward. <laughs> and I'll admit that I didn't have everything that would constitute a full deck. I was in Veterans Administration Neuropsychiatric Hospital in Waco, Texas, for longer than I care to admit. And they had a softball team there. It was just in those Thorazine days. <laughs> and of course, they had attendants, guards in white uniforms. Sometimes they'd tie you up in a leather vest and lead you around by a leather vest. But they had the softball team, and I played shortstop on that softball team, and it was the unanimous opinion of all the attendants that I was the best shortstop that had ever been at that institution. 
And I was in Alcoholics Anonymous sober for three years before it dawned on me that that ain't the kind of thing you'd put on a resume. <laughs> I was still telling people what a good shortstop I was in another. I went back to the home that I was born in. There's nobody there now. I was all by myself. And one day I was looking out a window and it just all became clear to me uh, that it was all over. That's all I can tell you. I told this to Joe L. up in Tyler, Texas one time. I, I said I had the feeling that the party's over. And Joe smiled at me and he said, yeah, real over. And I had the feeling that something had changed in my life and I had no idea what it was. But I had an experience that afternoon or night or whatever it was that looking back on it in retrospect sometimes terrifies me with the awesomeness that's potential to it. I walked away from that window and I walked around that house and not one single thing in that house had changed. Not nothing. All the dirt was in the same place and filthy dishes were in the refrigerator. Everything was exactly like it was before I had stood by that window. Except I had already taken my last drink and didn't know it. And that really awes me. And this is a pattern that I find recurring in my life as I practice the principles of the Alcoholics Anonymous program in my life. That many of the things that I would tell you that I might pray for have already taken place. And I'm too coarse, too insensitive to be aware that this is the way it is. And I oftentimes say to myself that I'd be better off if I'd learned to tiptoe through life. Lest the noise that I make as I stumble along the way distract me from the glory and the beauty of the reality in which I am immersed and in which I have my roots. And a guy came by and asked me if I could go to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I, I said, yes. And I'll tell you why I said, yes. I ran out of friends and enemies at the same time during my drinking. A lot of people think that if you got enemies, you're in bad shape. But if you don't have friends or enemies, you're in a hell of a shape. A lot of people think that love and hate are opposites, but they're not really. The opposite of love is indifferent. Love and hate have got a lot in common. One thing that they have in common is that they both bind you to the object of the feeling. You're just as bound to somebody you hate as you are to someone you love. That's the way I sponsor people. I can't get them to love me, so I'll get them to hate me. I mean, you know, that's just a good. I got people back home right now who can't stand my guts, but, but they can't get me off their mind, see? They take me to bed with them, and they wake up in the morning with me, all the time hating my guts, and I'm sitting there laughing. 
Because I know damn well they're never going to get sober unless they learn to love me. And I want to tell you one thing. I had been to Alcoholics Anonymous before. I don't know how long I went to Alcoholics Anonymous the first time. This was in 1956. I, I say that it was more than six months and less than two years, and I, I could figure it out closer than that if I wanted to, but this, that part of it is not important. That's not what I want to tell you. What I want to tell you is that I went to AA, and one night I walked out the door and didn't come back. Now, I don't remember any night that I walked out not to come back. But that's no deal at all to walk out and not come back. Anybody can do it, and, and, and this is nothing to it. And that's what I did. One night I walked out of a meeting and didn't come back. And when I walked out of that meeting that night, whenever it was, I still had all the things in life that I held sacred to me. I had the family and the money and the job and the car and the house and all those things. When I came back six years later, I had a dollar and 35 cents in my pocket and that was it. I had lost all the other things. The thing I'm trying to say is, I lost all the things that were sacred to me after I had come to Alcoholics Anonymous. And one of the reasons I want to say that is, I want to say something and I don't want it to come out ugly but I don't know any way to keep it from coming out ugly, and it's this. I go places and I hear people say, but I don't like AA. And I can't think of anything to say, but who the hell cares whether you like it or not? We're not running any damn popularity contest here. If you're an alcoholic like I am, you very well better sit out there and learn to like it, if for only one reason. It may very well be the only game in town. That's the way it worked out in my case. And I went to that AA meeting with that guy because he came by and asked me. And I hear people having great debates about how are we going to make this 12-step call on this fellow, this gal, what are we going to say, and all this kind of stuff. And this guy just came by and asked me if I'd go to a meeting. And it's a good thing that he didn't say anything more than that. Because he wasn't educated. He wasn't. And I was. I got two college degrees. Of course, my sponsors straightened me out on that shortly after I got an AA when they pointed out to me that rectal thermometers have degrees. <laughs> and everybody knows what you do with them. <laughs> but this guy was terrible. I, I used to hate to hear him read the preamble. I thought he was saying that AA wasn't allied with any sex. <laughs> and I knew I was in trouble, but I didn't want to get tied up in any organization that had any kind of rules like that. <laughs> and I came into AA and I did all the things, I guess, that are the wrong things to do. And I think to myself that if there's been a theme that's running through this convention, 
It's been the theme of what at least two speakers have deliberately stolen from me. <laughs> it's the theme of the free ride. And we all get that who come to Alcoholics Anonymous, and that's the miracle part of it. All of Alcoholics Anonymous is not a miracle as far as I'm concerned. But the free ride is. It's a flat miracle. And the miracle is this, that one day I'm sitting at home, a drunken, hostile, arrogant bastard. And the next day I'm sitting in an AA meeting, a sober, hostile, arrogant <laughs> bastard. But I'm listening, and this is new for me. I'm convinced that I could tell it better than the person that's up there if they'd only let me get up there, but they won't let me do it. But I'm listening. I'm a guy who never listened to anybody, and I'm listening. And this is a free ride, and this is when we go around clapping each other on the back and saying, ain't it wonderful to be sober? Of course it's wonderful to be sober. But for my money, this is a period in which we had the opportunity to learn, or at least I had the opportunity to learn what it was that I had to do in order to stay sober one day at a time for the rest of my life. It was that simple. And somewhere along the line, I got an inventory written, and by sheer chance, it turned out to be a good inventory. And one night I came home from a meeting and standing back there in this little business office of mine, I had a very clear thought run almost clean through me. And the thought was that I was going to drink again, and I knew I was going to drink again. But it was a thought that didn't have any feeling associated with it. And back in those days, we didn't have all the information available to us that we've got nowadays, and the only thing I had to hang on to that night was those lines down at the bottom of the first page of chapter 6 in the action where it's discussing the reasons that we might not want to take the fifth step, and it says the best reason first. If we skip this vital step, we may resume drinking. And that was the night I qualified for Alcoholics Anonymous. That's the night I became a member. That's the night that I had a desire to stop drinking. That's the night that I had listened to the story of what you were like, what had happened, and what you were like now. And I had decided that I was willing to go to any length to get what you had. So I went to the phone and I called up a person and told him I wanted to come take my fifth step with him, and I did. And I spent about four hours telling my fifth step. And I went into that encounter with the full knowledge that after I had gotten started, this guy might stop me and say, look, we deal with the dregs of humanity, but we really didn't have people like you in mind. 
I had always known that if anybody ever really found out who I was inside, they'd be done with me. But this guy listened me out. He let me put a whole pile of crap there on his desk, and when it was all over with, he smiled at me and he said, well, you know, we love you. For the first time in my life, I had been unconditionally accepted. I didn't have to make an A in school to be accepted. I didn't have to be an outstanding athlete to be accepted. I didn't have to be a good boy or go to church to be accepted. I was accepted simply as another human being who was in trouble and was trying to find a way out. And other than that, this man unacceptably, unconditionally accepted me. And you see, now I had passed from the area of the free ride into the area where I had to begin to earn my sobriety. And I believe this. I believe that what we get, we have, and what we earn, we own. And with all due respect to God and his grace, I have to stand here and tell you that the sobriety that I earned is vastly superior to that which I was given initially as a gift. Although I simultaneously will tell you that I never could have got to the point of earning it unless first I had been given the gift. But you see, I earned my sobriety. I worked for it. That's the title of the chapter, the sixth chapter. Not in the therapy, not in the charm school. It's into action. It's what we do, the things that we do. I hear all this conversation about attitude. Sometimes I feel like saying the hell with attitude. It's the action that counts. I got a note down at the bank that I pay right smack on time every month. And I go around there and pay that note, and I never have had anybody ask me what kind of attitude I was in that day. <laughs> but I'll tell you what, if I've come to pay this note over and over and over and over and over and renew it and make new loans and continue to pay the, the, the new note, I have learned that I am capable of being creative and productive. And I can laugh about things that used to distress me. And not long ago, I went into the bank and handed them a check and it was typed out to the First National Bank of Lake Province, Louisiana. And in parenthesis, underneath that, I had Indian givers. <laughs> and the teller that took the check looked at me and laughed and she said, that's about what I'd expect from you. I had amends to make. People talk about harm. How do we harm other people? For my money, we harm other people anytime we introduce error into their lives. And we make amends by eliminating the error that we have introduced into the lives of other people. And if you owe me a hundred dollars and don't pay me, by God, you have introduced error into my life. And then I learned about the 10th step and about prayer. 
All anybody needs to know about prayer are two things. One is to begin and two is to keep on. That's all. You don't have to know anything about God. You don't even have to believe in God in order to begin to pray. Only two things that are needed to get going in prayer. One is to begin, two is to keep on. And then I set out to sober up all the drunks in my area of the country. Didn't make any difference whether you had a problem or not, I was going to break it out. And I got a reputation as the guy who fixed drunk. And one afternoon, a lady went over to a physician's office who didn't know anything about alcoholic, but this physician's nurse, I had worked with her brother, and she told this lady to come over to my office. And she came over there with it looked like about 15 kids, all about five years old. I know that wasn't so, but that's the way it looked to me. And she told me about her husband, and I agreed to go out and see him that night after I'd got off from work. And he lived way out in the country, and I skipped supper to go out there to see that sucker. And I had just bought me a brand new canary yellow Plymouth, and about halfway out there, I got to thinking, what if I asked him to go to a meeting, and he says yes, and then he gets in my car and throws up in it. Now, I'm talking about a car with about 18 miles on it, and, and I started to turn around and go get a pigeon of mine that had a pickup truck. <laughs> But I didn't. I went on out there, and when I got there, and this is the thing about it, I wonder what the general public would think if they ever really saw us in action working with a wet alcoholic on a 12-step call. Because as soon as I got out there, the wife and all the kids, they ran outside the house and hid underneath the window where his bedroom was so they could watch and hear what was going on. And I walked in the room, and he was in his drunk, he was in his drinking uniform, <laughs> dirty shorts and dirty socks. And the only difference between him and women is this dirty panties and dirty bras. I mean, it's all the same thing. But I got there a little late. He'd already had too much to drink, and he couldn't understand anything I said. And he was a little short guy, and he couldn't have been five feet tall. And he was laying there in that bed, and he had a little brown felt hat on the end table there. And I knew he couldn't hear anything I said, but hell, I'd driven all that distance and had missed my supper, and I was going to give my pitch anyway, whether he could hear it or not. So I sat down in the chair, and I started talking to him and telling him about it. And then I saw something happen that I've seen a lot of times happen since then, and I'm going to warn you. I'm giving you a flat warning. I saw a light go on in that guy's eyes. And don't you fool around here in Alcoholics Anonymous and you get to messing with somebody and you see a light go on in their eyes because then you're hooked for good. And you'll never get out of the damn thing then. 
But I saw a light go on in that guy's eyes, and, and, and it, 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 it thrilled me and excited me, and it also deprived me of a little bit of my sanity because he stood up in the bed, and he started going up and down like this. And I stood, and I stood up when he stood up, but I don't know why I did that. And, and I should have caught on when he started springing up in the bed, but I didn't. I just stood there kind of in a trance. <laughs> and he reached over and got that brown felt hat, and then he leaped out. <laughs> and he wrapped his legs around my waist and his arms around my neck. And with his nose right there. He said, do you love me? And I said, yeah, I love you. As I was disentangling myself. And when I was leaving, his wife said to me, I don't see how you could say you love him. And I told her, I said, you know, I don't think maybe a mother loves a newborn baby so much for what he is as she does for what she knows he can become. But she accepts the child as he is. She don't say, go away, kid, and come back when you're three and cute. She Steps a red-faced, scrawling, yelling, screaming brat, <laughs> just as he is at the moment that she confronts him with her love. And she offers herself as a channel through which that child can grow and develop and mature into what God intended him from all eternity to be. And isn't that what we do in Alcoholics Anonymous? Isn't that really what we do here? We should never ask an alcoholic to come up to where we are. Because the glory of our fellowship is to go down on the floor or in the gutter if necessary, put our arms around him and under him, and hold him close to us as we both stand up again and then stand by his side until such time as he can learn to walk again. And that's the importance of sponsorship. <laughs> Somebody to walk along beside a poor, sick human being until such time as that person can stand alone. And a good, strong sponsor is the kind of a person who will have you out on the end of a pier and say, trust me, and then push you in the water. <laughs> but you see, you've got to learn to swim in deep water. You can't learn to swim in 18 inches of water. You can drown there. You can't learn to swim. And that's what we tell people who come into Alcoholics Anonymous. Get back in the stream of life. Use the program as leverage, just enough to stay out of the weeds. And the stream itself 
will carry you to the place where you're supposed to be. And the place where you're supposed to be, where I'm supposed to be, is the place where we are today. A caring person, learning to love and to care, learning to give away what was given to us so freely. And really, and I'm about wound up now, you don't need to get nervous. <laughs> Hell, I didn't know it was that early. But anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm finished. I just, I just want to say one thing that's in the book. It's back there on page 265. That says it all as far as I'm concerned. It says, with few exceptions, my members discover that they have tapped an unsuspected inner resource, which they presently come to identify with their own concept of a power greater than themselves. Many of us think that the awareness of this power is the essence of a spiritual experience. Our more religious members call it God consciousness. Let me say that just one more time. Just think of what the words are saying. With few exceptions, our members discover that they have tapped an unsuspected inner resource which they presently come to identify with their own concept of a power greater than themselves. Many of us think that the awareness of this power is the essence of a spiritual experience. This is the thing that I'm grateful to you for. I'm grateful that they exist in this world in which I live. A community of men and women who will take a hopeless, arrogant, ignorant, lying, stupid, no good bastard like me, and in your love and your care and your warmth and your tolerance, hold me up. Until such time as I could make contact with this inner reality, which is the guiding force in my life today. Thank you very much.